You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Kids, you can make your way out uh, to children's ministry. Your teachers will meet you at the back there and uh, help you find your way down to the classrooms. I'm so thankful for the men and women who so faithfully serve in the children's ministry. Love you guys. Um, As they're making their way out, you can grab your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one in the pew pew, uh, in front of you. And uh, as always, if, uh, if you need a Bible... If you don't have a Bible at home or one you can understand easily, take it. We want you to have it. We want you to, uh, to take that away. We're glad for that. Uh, but we want you to have God's Word open in front of you now on your lap. And uh, the reason for that is uh, you have a pastor um, who is not great in wisdom, who doesn't come with great and lofty thoughts. Um, this is all I have. And that's the way it ought to be. Uh, and so we just want to look together at God's word and, uh, and see what he has for us this morning. So um, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Um, you've been seeing this phrase a lot since we started. This has been our theme through the book of Colossians, new life. The new life that we have in Christ. We've, we've bumped into this theme a few times already. Um, this morning as we get into um, the, the, the verses 11 to 15 in chapter 2, this is where it really begins to, to drill down, to come alive. Um, the, what does it mean that we have new life in him? We took a break from Colossians last week as we installed um, new elders. Uh, but so, so it's two weeks ago that we were looking at uh, verses 10 and 11. And uh, this amazing statement, um, in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's all there in him. And then you have been filled. You have been completed. You have been made Perfect in him who is the head of all rule and authority. What does that mean? What does it mean to be filled in Christ, to be completed in him, to be perfected in him? What is this new life that Paul is driving at? And, and so verses um, 11 to, uh, to 15 He opens that up. He drives a little deeper. So we're going to look at that today. Um, Gives us the details of this glorious new life. Here's what he says. Let me read it for us. Starting in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you join me in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your glorious truth, that it is trustworthy. God, help us this morning as we turn to your word to have ears to hear. God, you know we are slow to hear. You know we have stubborn hearts. You know we are easily distracted. God, would you help us this morning to see, to hear you. Lord, would you be at work? Would you, by your word, uh, transform us, change us more and more to the image of Christ? God, we invite the work of your spirit this morning in us. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the substance. This is the, the reality of what this new life is all about. Verse 10, Paul says, you have been filled in him. And then verse 11 dives deeper. Notice the the grammatical tenses change. So verse 10 is the perfect tense. It's It's a past tense, but it still affects today. You have been filled. Past completed, ongoing effects. Verse 11 then, he repeats the in him. In him also you were circumcised. But notice he goes to a simple past tense. You were. This is what happened to you. He's saying, these are the things that brought that new life in. Your fullness in Christ began here. And the first thing we see, first thing he shows us, is that we have this new life in his death. Verse 11, first part of verse 12, seemingly out of nowhere, Paul brings up the topic of circumcision. And you ask, why, Paul? What does this have to do with anything? Um, I don't blame you for asking. Um, This is an awkward topic. This is not something we should be talking about in public. Um, Thanks, Paul. Just writing that out. Now preachers for generations have to stand up and talk about circumcision on Sunday mornings. Great. But it is more than that. It is actually a public thing. It does have much to do with us. Circumcision was the Lord's mark on his people through the old covenant. The covenant made from Abraham through Moses and David. All the way back, Genesis 17, 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So it was the sign of God's covenant people, God's family. These were God's set-apart, chosen people, and that was this physical mark on them. But even in the Old Testament, Right from the beginning, it was clear that that circumcision was never meant to be just a physical thing. There There was a spiritual reality to it. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, Moses says, And now, Israel, 
what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. He's he's kind of recapping the, the covenant there. And then down in verse 16, he says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Circumcise your heart. It was an inner reality that God was pointing to, that he was looking at. It wasn't just an exterior thing. There was a spiritual reality. So Paul kind of unpacks this a little bit, Romans 2. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely a Jew outwardly. You thought Jew was a race? You thought you were just born one? No, there was more to it. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew, a, a true Jew, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So circumcision, this this cutting off of the foreskin was a, a physical act, but so much more than that, it pointed to a spiritual reality. It was symbolic of something so much more. Um, John MacArthur puts it this way. Circumcision was only the outward demonstration that man was born sinful and needed cleansing. The cutting away of the male foreskin on the reproductive organ was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. No other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin in as much as that it is part of the man that produces life and all that he produces is sinful. We're sinners. We're rebels against God. That's right at the core of who we are. We're, we, we, we try to live rightly, try to be good people, and we fail, and we fail, and we fail. We're having our family devotions after supper this last week. We're working through uh, the New City Catechism, and uh, that had us studying the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. So I asked one of my younger boys, have you kept this commandment? Grin on his face. Yeah, I got this one. Check mark. I have never murdered. But you know it was a trap, right? Head over to Matthew 5. What does Jesus say? Oh, you thought that command was just about murder strictly and specifically? No, 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 no. When God gave those Ten Commandments, it entailed so much more than just the the basic level. It was pointing toward the, the whole category of sin. God loves life and peace. So Jesus says, if you even speak an angry word to a brother, you've committed this sin. More than that, if you have anger in your heart toward a brother, you've committed that sin. You've committed murder. His face fell. His literal brother sitting beside him with whom he had six fights between supper and the beginning of family devotions, um, it's hopeless. What do we do? Not even an angry word. And, and even if I could keep my darn mouth shut, my heart is the problem. How do we fight this? Circumcision was this physical reminder that the root of sin is right at our hearts. That to be God's people, to be part of his family, to be made right with him, in covenant with him... We need something done about that sinfulness. And Paul is saying, this is it. In Jesus, 
You were circumcised, not with the circumcision of the body, not the old physical circumcision, not done with hands, the circumcision done without hands. The spiritual, true circumcision, the putting off of the body of flesh. And by that, I think he means the sinful nature, the cutting off of the the wickedness of the heart, a circumcision done by Jesus himself. Verse 12, then he all of a sudden jumps metaphors. Putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Okay, so we're glad that he's jumped to a better metaphor. This is far less awkward. But how did we get here? What's the point? How how did you connect from circumcision to baptism? Paul is saying, just like circumcision was the, the sign of the old covenant for all of those who were part of Israel... It was the the physical mark of those belonging to God, and it was a a physical reality that pointed to a a spiritual reality. So is baptism, the sign of the new covenant for all of those who are part of the church. It's a physical mark on those belonging to God, and and it's also a, a physical sign pointing to a spiritual reality. Where circumcision only pointed to the need the need to have something done in us, the promise that God would do it, baptism points to the substance. Baptism points to the reality. This is how God would remove that sinful heart. In baptism, more precisely, in the spiritual reality that baptism points to, we see our old sinful selves buried with Christ. Why is he buried with Christ? Because he's been crucified with Christ. It means we died with him. So this new life that Paul's been talking about, it begins with a death. Death of the sinful self. That's the fulfillment of the promise that circumcision had been looking forward to, hoping for, longing for, the stripping away of the sinful nature. We're born in sin. Our hearts are stoned toward the Lord. Sin is like this this hereditary, chronic, crippling, ultimately fatal disease that we have from, from the day we're born. It's the dominating principle. It rules our hearts. It systematically brings pain and suffering into our lives. It cuts us off from the, from the God who is life, and the end result is death. Eternal death, hell. Baptism, in part, is a picture. Going down into the water, a picture of the death and burial. Saying, I have been crucified with Christ. My my sinful old self, he died on that cross with Jesus. When Jesus died, the wrath of God was poured out on him. All the wrath that I deserved was, was dealt with in full. The new life begins with the death of the old self. If you're in Christ, if you're truly saved, a follower of him, you need to realize this very real and radical transformation has happened in you. Right at the core of who you are. You are no longer who you once were. Your sinful flesh, which once ruled you, dominated you, it's been put to death. Now some of you, 
experienced that in very clear and radical ways, right? There was a notable domination of sin over your life. It was clear and evident. It controlled you. And the day he saved you, that just changed. Your sin no longer controlled you. I don't want anything to do with that anymore. You, you put down the bottle. You turned off the computer. Your, your anger just evaporated and turned to joy and love. You were a different person. Praise the Lord. That's, that's God's grace at work. That's his redeeming work in your life. But, but for others, it's just not that clear. You continue to struggle and wrestle with temptation. You consistently fall flat on your face. The battle is relentless. And to be honest, you're not even sure you're on the winning side of it. You're tempted to wonder, am I just dead in sin? Is this even true of me? Because I don't feel this. I feel sin. I see patterns of sin that, and, and, and it's so apparent in my life. Do I really have the new life? Well, your experience is not abnormal. You are not alone. For reasons far above our pay grade, God in his wisdom and even no less by his grace allows his children to continue to wrestle and battle and fight against sin, to be tempted and tried and tested, to be purified slowly. And that battle does not always mean you lack the new life. That death to sin is a death to the the dominating power of sin, the controlling authority that sin had over us. But it is not, not for any believer, not one single Christian, the end of the presence of sin in us. We still fight it. It's no longer our master It doesn't have dominating control over us, and yet by old habits and foolish decisions and lapse of judgment, we still obey its commands. We still do the things that it says. It's as if we were in the the army and you see the boot camp drill sergeant shouting commands and all of the soldiers drop and do push-ups or whatever he says, and and then Christ comes and says, you're no longer in this army. You're free. That guy has no authority over you, none whatsoever. You belong to a new country now, but you still hear the voice of the drill sergeant. From time to time, you drop and give him 20 just because that's what you're so accustomed to doing. If that's you, you need to hold on to this reality. As you do hard, relentless battle with that sinful tendencies and habits continue to to tempt you and drag you down you need to keep this truth in mind sin no longer has control over you it makes its demands it shouts loudly at it you feel this inner need to obey but it doesn't control you you have no obligation to obey repeat it to yourself declare it out loud say it in the face of your temptation scream it in the face of the devil himself no I have been crucified with Christ. Sin no longer rules me. You have no authority here. Fight that battle. Fight it with confident hope because of what Christ has accomplished. But there is one more group that I would want to address here. And that is those who have no battle with sin. You don't fight sin because you don't want to. 
Now, you, you wouldn't say it that way. You, you would nuance it much better than that. You'd be very careful of the terms that you use. But the reality is, in your heart, when you're alone with your thoughts, when there's no social pressure there, your friends aren't watching, even your wife, your husband isn't there to judge you, the reality is you don't love God and hate the sin that he condemns. You love your sin and you hate the God who condemns it. Sin's not your enemy. It's your secret companion, your mistress. If that's true of you, you need to be warned. You cannot claim these things. You may believe that you're free. I, I'm not a slave to sin. I do whatever I want. Well, that's the problem. It's what you want. It's that your heart itself is captive to the power of sin, and, and you will be culpable for the punishment of sin. Turn to Christ. What he offers is quite literally infinitely better than anything this world has to offer. Renounce your sin. Trust in Jesus. Look to him for that new life that we so desperately need. We have new life in his death. But secondly, picking up in verse 12, we have new life in his resurrection. Verse 12 says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The symbol of baptism is two-sided, right? There's the, the going down into the water. It's the death of that old sinful self with the death of Christ. And that is a glorious and wonderful reality. And yet I, I have yet to attend a baptism that ended there. It is not considered a successful baptism unless the person comes back out of the water. It's pretty key to the whole thing. Praise God, there's a, there's a second half. We come up out of the water. Why? Because Jesus came up out of the grave. Because by the power of the Almighty Father and the working of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God was raised to new life. Romans 6 makes all these same connections and draws a lot of these things out. Verse 5 it says, If we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. The two go together. We will one day be fully and completely made new. Our physical bodies transformed into no less physical, but uncorrupted eternal bodies. But notice, that's not exactly what Paul's talking about in Colossians. There's a distinction here. Look at Colossians again, verse 12. Romans 6 says that we will be raised. Colossians, he says... You were raised. It's past tense. He, he's not here actually looking forward to the future resurrection. He's saying, you have this already. The phrase that we often use here is the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. The, already the battle with sin has been won. The body of sin is, is crucified with Christ. That's true right now. And yet, there is this not yet there's the fullness of victory that we wait for. There's that great and glorious day when Jesus returns and all sin 
everywhere is absolutely done away with, but that's not today. We have glimpses of that. We, we live partially in that reality, but not completely. So we live in the already and the not yet with regards to our, our sin. And, and it's the same with the resurrection. There's a not yet resurrection that we look forward to. This transformation of our bodies, this full entrance into eternity with our Lord. But don't miss the fact there is an already aspect to our resurrection. We have new life today. In Christ here and now, this new life is not something that we only look forward to. Christianity is not entirely future focused. Romans 6, Paul says, uh, looking at the, the future resurrection, we will one day be raised with him. As he gets down to verse 11, he says, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's, that's not future anymore. He's looking at present. He's looking at their everyday experience. Remember, count it out. This, that, that word reckon here. Believe it to be true that you are dead to your sin and you are alive in Christ Jesus. Your salvation, the, the transformation that God did in you in that moment did not only remove the sinful nature, but it implanted a new life. Think about this. The powerful working of God. The death-defying power of God that, that reached down from heaven through the stone walls of that tomb into the three-day lifeless body of Jesus with all its rips and holes and tears and it raised him again to life. That power is also brought you to life and is at work in you. We don't just die to the power of sin. We live in the power of Christ. His resurrection at work in us. Talk about hope as we fight this battle against sin. Our hearts, our eyes open to a, a whole new world, a whole new reality that we never saw before. For the first time, we see how, how hollow and deceptive are the lies of this world, living less and less every day, defined by its power, chasing after those things. And in exchange, this new heart that feels, that loves the things of God. New eyes that, that see his, his glory and his goodness in a new way. Seeing and seeking after that, that soul-satisfying, joy-filling fountain like never before of the glory of God. The new life says to the Lord with, with Asaph, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In all of heaven and earth, the Lord is my desire. I have him. In him I'm satisfied. That's what I want. Paul's going to spend the rest of chapter 2 of Colossians pushing back against these false teachers who were attacking them and casting doubt on their understanding of the new life and what that means. And then chapter 3, he's going to kind of cut loose and begin to unpack what does this new life look like? Where does it go from here? And so Colossians 3, 1, we've already looked at this passage. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things above, not on the things of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's our reality. And after that glorious opening of chapter 3, he's going to walk through what does that look like as we set our minds on the things above, as we seek after him. How does that change the way we live in the, in the church and in our marriages and in our parenting and in our workplace? The new life lives and acts and chooses out of the reality of the, the glory of God. It, it sees this world, this life in proper context with, with who God truly is. So how should I treat my brother and how should I use my free time and, and, and what do I do with my finances? And every detail of life comes into conformity with the truth of the, the glory of God and the word of God. And yes, that requires work. That requires effort and energy on your behalf. It requires you setting your mind on things above, shaking off old habits, breaking sinful patterns of thoughts, identifying and, and digging out these deeply rooted assumptions that you didn't even know you had, these, these value judgments and convictions and, and reorienting them, bringing them into conformity with the word of God. That takes self-awareness and insight. It takes diligence and, and persistence and discipline. It is a long, difficult road. It takes humility and, and submission and brokenness before the Lord. It, it will take everything you have. God calls us to pursue that hard. But at the same time, it will, it will happen not because of your strength and your ability and your diligence. It will happen because of the mighty power of God at work in you. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us that new life and then works it out in us, conforming us to the image of Christ. We have this partnership with the Holy Spirit as we strive and work and he brings life. So we have this new life in his death, we have this new life in his resurrection power. And then thirdly, we have new life in his forgiveness. Look at verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 13, he, he recaps this amazing work of our salvation. We were dead in our trespasses, the, the uncircumcision of our flesh. We were living in sin, in need of rescue, and God made us alive together with Christ. And then he comes to the details, the how. Having forgiven us, all our trespasses. We were dead. We were dead because of our sin. Our trespasses against God left us under a death penalty. We were dead men walking. But God, God made us alive with Christ. How? How did he do it? Well, forgiving all our trespasses. And then verse 14 gives this unique picture of our forgiveness. It speaks of a, a written record of debt. This is, this is a legal IOU. 
A statement of guilt. A conclusive, undeniable evidence against us. And it stands against us with legal demands. It, it legally, rightly demands our death. And Paul says, this God set aside. The word literally means he, he took it out of the midst. He removed it from the conversation. This is like a, a piece of evidence that was, that was presented in a courtroom and that is then deemed inadmissible. It's taken out of consideration. The jury is told, you don't forget that. That can't play a factor anymore. It's no longer applicable in this case. And it wasn't just a, a small piece of circumstantial evidence that was taken away. What was taken away is the complete list of charges against us. How did he remove it? He nailed it to the cross. Think about your sin. Think about it specifically. Allow some of those unsavory memories to to come back a little bit. The ugliness of it. The filth. The shame. The wickedness. Maybe you don't have to go back far. We're guilty. We were not framed. Right? That, that certificate of debt was not forged. It had my name on it and I was guilty. And God took that list of sins. And notice not just sin in general. Not just some generic sinfulness. The actual specific record of your sin. The record of debt that stood against us. And we who deserve death stood by and watched. As Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, was beaten, was whipped, mocked had a crown of thorns pressed onto his head. And then Pilate wrote out the record of death, the official accusation against him. John 19, 19, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and he nailed it to the cross. And there, hanging under that accusation, Jesus died. Ironically, that statement was true. And as such, it was no reason that Jesus should be put to death. But by God's design, he didn't die for his record of debt. He died for ours. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. My record of debt, a list longer than I could imagine, not just the grotesque and heinous sins that still make my conscience cringe, but, but scores of thoughtless sins. How many times have I broken his law? How many times have I blasphemed his name by my actions and didn't even notice? And it's nailed to the cross. And not even only those, but even the sins that lie ahead of me today, the sins for later this afternoon and five years from now and 10 years from now. Christ has forgiven all our trespasses. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Christian, do you know that to be true? 
Your new life in Christ is a new life in full and complete, accomplished forgiveness. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31.34, for I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. Catholic Church teaches that the Lord's Supper is, in a sense, an ongoing presentation of the Lord's sacrifice. Essentially, sacrificing Jesus again every week. His death has to be brought again before the Lord over and over and over again because in in their thinking, if you repent today and then you sin tomorrow, you have stepped out of grace. You need to go to confession. You need to do penance. You need to partake again of the Lord's Supper in order to come back into grace to be forgiven again. The Word of God teaches, no, if you are truly saved, that record of your sin, all of it was nailed to the cross. First to last, from least to greatest, it was dealt with. And the faithful God, the God for whom it is impossible to lie, has said, I will remember your sin no more. Those feelings of guilt and shame, failure and fear, We still feel them. That's not from the Lord. Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a legal standing, and God has declared you are not guilty. It's not accurate in this new life that we have in Christ. We stand in him forgiven, washed clean, made new, once red as scarlet, now white as snow. Conviction of sin, yes. Hatred for sin? Absolutely. Desire to to grow in holiness and frustration over sin? But guilt? Shame? No. It's washed away. That's what we have in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, that's what he offers to anyone who would come to him. We have new life in his death. We have new life in his glorious resurrection. We have new life in the fullness of his forgiveness, and then finally, we have new life in his victory. Look at verse 15, short but so packed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He there at the start of 15 um, is a reference to God from the middle of verse 13. So he, God, made us alive together with Christ. He forgave our trespasses, canceling the record of debt. And God disarmed the rulers and authorities. I'm speaking here again of of the spiritual powers that that were such a big part of this conversation in Colossians with the false teachers. Um, It's Satan and his demonic army of of fallen angels. So think of uh, Ephesians 6. uh, Ephesians, Colossians so continually parallel one another. Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the battle we're in. It's a spiritual battle. And yet God has already won the war. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. So the, 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 world, the, the word there means he stripped them. He's taken away 
their weapons, their armor. He has left them naked and bare. I've never been to war, but I have to assume that the, the army that comes out naked are the ones that lost and lost bad, right? Like that's, that did not go well. This is not a close fight, right? If we're gonna use sports analogies, this was not a one-point game. There were no extra innings needed. This is a blowout. He didn't eke past them. He stripped them bare. He made a spectacle of them. And it wasn't private either. He put them to open shame, publicly displaying it, triumphing over them in him. Some translations have in it, in reference to the cross. Other translations have in him, in reference to Jesus. Um, The Greek grammar there is just not clear, but it makes no difference. If it's talking about Christ, it's in reference to what Christ did on the cross. And if it's talking about the cross, it's talking with reference to what Christ did there. And the word triumphing literally means leading a triumphal procession. It's this Roman custom of the victory parade. Right? So if there was an esteemed, victorious general who'd, who'd gone out to battle and had, and had won a mighty victory, he would be honored for that being brought into Rome with a parade. And, and the people would gather and line the streets and crowd at the windows along the way. And, and, and the general would ride proudly on his horse, dressed in, in splendor. Following behind him then would be the proof, the evidence of his victory. The display of his might and his victory would be the dirty war-weary, blood-stained enemy soldiers, bound in chains, the prisoners of war, stripped not only of their weapons, but of their pride and their dignity, made into human trophies to declare the greatness of this general who had been victorious over them. That's what the Lord has done and will do with our enemies, with Satan and his demons. Remember, Satan himself is is very powerful from our perspective, um, but he is simply a created being. He's an angel who fell from honor. Colossians 1.17 says that, that all things hold together in Jesus and that all things include Satan himself. Satan does not continue to exist except by the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. It's not a fight to take him out. Jesus just needs to stop giving him existence. The only real power that Satan has over us is that he is an accuser. He accuses us of evil. He points out our sin. And and in the light of the the righteousness and the justice of God, that, that is a great power. That's a terrifying reality. But if God, by the cross, has removed the record of our debt that stood against us, If those legal demands have been completely wiped out, then what power does Satan have left? He has nothing left in his arsenal. He's been stripped of his weaponry. All of a sudden, his accusations, his attacks of of guilt and shame, it falls flat. He attacks with doubt and fear and lies. It's like those old cartoons. You'd see the villain approaching from around the corner and and he would grow in this large shadow against the opposing wall and it would get bigger and bigger, this shadow of this great monster, but then the light comes on or he comes around the corner and it's like this helpless, pathetic mouse. 
is harmless. Satan continues to threaten and to challenge, but the truth is he has been disarmed. He's been put to open shame. Our new life is to be a life in the victory of Christ. We don't live in fear and dread of the devil or demons, nor in fear and dread of guilt and shame. Now, there should be a healthy respect. Jude 9 says, When the archangel Michael, think about Michael. Every time Michael shows up in the Bible, his first words have to be, don't freak out. Stand up. Because he's a big, scary dude. He's a huge, powerful angel. Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. These people who go around shouting at demons or telling Satan to bug off. I, I think they're missing some things. He is more powerful than you and I, by a long shot. Michael leaned on the Lord. He said, the Lord rebuke you. God deal with you. No, I'm, I'm not going to fight you. This is the Lord's fight. You answer to him. But we do walk in confidence. We walk in victory. Not only over Satan and his demons, knowing that they've been disarmed by the cross, but over their weapons of, of guilt and shame and fear and doubt. Those are attacks from the enemy. And there's nothing behind them. Not if we're in Christ. Put on the armor of God. I think we so often think of, of spiritual warfare and the armor of God in this kind of vague, mystical sense. And what does that mean? It's really practical. Think about it. Put on the belt of truth. Do you know the truth? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Walk in righteousness. And those attacks of guilt and shame, they, they get turned away. Take up the shield of faith extinguishes the fiery darts of the enemy as he throws these flaming darts as we see. No, I have faith in Christ that will not be shaken. Put on the helmet of salvation, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. They are practical, tangible ways that we do spiritual warfare, that we fight against the lies and the accusations of our enemy. No more fear, no more shame, no more guilt. Absolute confidence in the victory of Christ. This is the new life that we have in him. New life in his death, new life in his resurrection, new life in this complete forgiveness and in his unchallenged victory. Are you walking in that reality today? Fight the battle of sin. And, and we're going to go home this afternoon standing in this great joyful victory of Christ. And then we're going to get angry at one of the kids and go, wow, where did it go? Take it up again. Fight that battle of sin. Alive in Christ. Forgiven by the cross. Victorious in him. Let your decisions, your plans, your, your hopes and dreams let the words out of your mouth, the attitudes of your heart, the habits that you keep, the way you spend your time, let all of it reflect the truth of the glory of God and the wonder of this new life that we have in Christ. As believer, this is true of you. We're going to close today with that reminder, celebrating uh, these great and glorious truths 
in communion. Baptism is this physical sign of entering into the covenant. I've been crucified and raised with Christ. Now I'm part of the, the body of Christ, the family of Christ. Is this statement that, that now I'm in. So if you call yourself a Christian, side note, and you're not baptized, um, that doesn't make sense biblically. Like that's step number one. I'm going to follow Christ. Christ is going this way. Baptism is the first step. I'm in. And, and it ought to be this joyful act of, of obedience, this celebration of new life. And so I just encourage you in that. Communion is similar. It's a physical sign that points to a spiritual reality. The bread, the cup, the body and blood of Jesus as we eat and drink, we're communicating together. He is my life. I get my nourishment, my sustenance from him. I live day to day, moment by moment in in this new covenant in the power of Christ. So where baptism is a one-time entering in, communion is the ongoing walking out. I'm living in this covenant. This is my life, my hope in him. His body broken for me, his blood poured out for me. I need it every day. This is why, uh, historically, Baptists have said, you, you need to be baptized before you take communion. Now, we don't make a hard line on that, but that's the progression, right? I am in, and now I'm staying in. Uh, I just encourage those of you with young kids to have that in mind. Here's the process. Daddy, when do I get a snack? Well, the day that it's no longer a snack. When you get baptized, when you become part of the fellowship, then, then you can say, I'm part of the fellowship. But certainly, if you're not a Christian this morning, you don't have this new life. If you have to step back and say, you know what, I, I'm honest, I love sin, and I, I hate the God who condemns it, and we just ask you to observe. Don't partake of communion. Um, this isn't for you. We'd invite you. Come to Christ. Trust in him. This can be true of you. You're welcomed in as we all are as sinful and dirty sinners coming in repentance. But for those of us who are in Christ, we celebrate. Um, Josh and Caleb, why don't you guys um, join me back up here as we prepare um, to sing. For those of us who know this this magnificent truth, who who are hearing these things and going, oh man, I feel that battle of sin, but I know I am dead to sin. I am alive in Christ. I have been forgiven. I am victorious in him. Um, What else can we do but sing? And so we're going to celebrate communion this morning. And look, there's a, there's a place for somber reflection. And that's a, that's a proper, appropriate way to do communion. But not today. Today we want to celebrate. Today we want to rejoice uh, in this new life that we have. So um, would you stand and uh, let's worship our God together. And I'll come back up in a moment and we'll take communion together.